This episode of The Dusty Allen Show wouldn't have been possible without our good friends from I Am Thirsty. Well, it still would have been possible, but they are great supporters of the show. Now, for the perfect accompaniment to your drinks or cocktails at home, check them out at iamthirsty.com.au or iamthirstyau on Instagram. You can purchase online or view the full list of their stockers on the website. Don't forget to chuck in the code THIRSTYFORDUSTY for 20% off. That's all caps, THIRSTYFORDUSTY for 20% off. Bang. On this episode of The Dusty Allen Show, I'm joined by artist, athlete and entrepreneur Jamari sanderson Miller. A runner from way back. He started sprinting on the sandy beaches of Adelaide and made it to running nationals on the Gold Coast with a few bumps along the way. He ditched his 9 to 5 gig and he now spends his time coaching young Indigenous runners and delivering cultural education in schools across South Australia. I caught up with him in late 2021 via Zoom and I'm excited to share that conversation with you now. Apologies for the audio quality on this one. Zoom let us down in a few spots but I know you'll really enjoy the yarn. So come on in. The water's great. And now listening to the Dusty Allen Show. Welcome to the Dusty Allen Show. TJ, welcome to the Dusty Allen Show. Pleasure being here. Um, you know, it's been a long wait um, for this uh, catch up to happen. Uh, like like you said, pre-show, you know, unfortunately we couldn't do it face-to-face, but, you know, we're getting it done in, you know, in this online world instead. I think a lot of people, since I, since I started this show and it essentially was born out of lockdown and pandemics and things last year, obviously everyone has had a different experience for, for what it's been like. And by the time everyone listens to this, I imagine we'll still be, you know, still be dealing with this, with this pandemic, but it's been, you know, we're doing this via Zoom and it's been probably the the key way that a lot of people, at least professionally, been keeping in touch and stuff. But I've been, I've had the pleasure of, uh, of hanging out with you in person before and geez, I can't wait to actually do it again. And I'm trying to think, I was actually in Adelaide recently for a whirlwind visit, didn't get to, didn't get to catch you, but was the last, when was the last time we caught up in person? Was it? I the basketball tournament? No, wasn't the run immersion after run that? Run immersion, yes. Yeah, That's so right. I haven't seen you since the run immersion. That feels like almost ages ago as well. Well, that, that'll, that'll be coming up on two years. So it's in October. Sure, we've seen each other before that, since that. Yeah, mate. It's, uh... Oh, who knows? Anyway, we're here now <laughs> having a yarn, and I appreciate you being on the show. And I suppose, like the reason I wanted to have you uh, have you on here, like you, to me, you've always been a very, very fascinating person for many reasons. Like I'd heard whispers about you know through like work circles and stuff about this guy who can like run really fast and you know, a bit of a bit of a good looking rooster and all that sort of stuff. So you know, if you're uh, if you're, you know anyone needs some uh, some good looking talent down in Australia, just to jump on TJ's Instagram, have a bit of a look. He's a he's a very very good looking man. But I will say to uh, you know, anyone who's interested, he's a taken man because uh, recently uh, tied the knot, mate. Yeah, recently married. Uh, I think we've gone on almost seven or eight months now since I tied the knot last December. Um, yeah, yeah, it was about eight months now, isn't it? December? I don't know. I think so. Yeah. Lost track of time these days, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah got married in December um, to 
my wife, Abby Samson-Miller, right now, um, which has been amazing. Uh, it's been a great journey so far. I've got like a long, long way ahead of us. What's, um, what's your favourite thing about being married? Um, I'm not too sure. A lot, of, a lot of people, you know, always ask, you know, oh, you know, how's married life and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the, it's like not much really changed for us because we were sort of already living with each other from, you know, day one of actually almost meeting. Um, but I don't know, it's just having someone that's probably on your vibe, on your level, you know, constantly there by your side to support you, which is probably the the best part of, you know, having um, having a partner, being married or, or a girlfriend or whatever. Yeah, nice, mate. And I've obviously got the dog now as well. Yeah, the, yeah. Mate, you're, you're an efficient man, got the, got the Instagram all sorted. Was that your idea? Uh, yeah, no, it was a mutual one. Yeah, yep. we, we saw it as, um, you know, hopefully we can get him some some followers, you know, reel in some car dealerships or something like that, get, <laughs> get some, some free cars rolling in. <laughs> you never now, know. Days. Now, mate, I feel like I said, first came to know you was as an athlete and your like athletics is like it's an Olympic year this year. Everyone's, you know, always talking about like athletics and that sort of thing. Like how did you... How did you come to be to be in athletics? Because I know it's like, yeah, okay, like little ats and that sort of thing. But I've had a lot of conversations around with people, you know, given that the uh, the Olympics is, has been this year about, you know, like track and field, that sort of thing. And particularly some friends from, say, Europe or even like North America, where you hear, say, for a lot of like US track athletes, like they did it in high school, they did it in college and they, you know, they did track. Whereas I feel like mm-hmm. it's very rare to hear that, in Australia, most of the time, people growing up, it's like you choose a sport and it's not normally like athletics or high jump or that sort of thing. Like, how did you come about getting involved? Um, it was kind of through surf lifesaving for me. Um, so as a young kid, I, I was one of those kids that jumped from, you know, a lot of different sports. I was always doing something. Um, but then I joined a surf lifesaving club, you know, under 13s maybe. Um, and wasn't a massive fan of doing all the water events, but obviously loved um, the beach sprints, the beach flags. And it kind of sort of stemmed from there. Um, kind of just fell in love with sprinting through beach or beach sand running. Um, and, you know, a coach from the club said, Oh, do you want to come out and train? You know, we're um, training on grass. We know we're doing this, we're doing that. Um, and it kind of just stemmed from there and progressed every year. Um, so like I did do it through, you know, through my high school years, um, you know, nowhere near as, you know, at that eliteness level of, you know, how, uh, you know, the USA people would do it in their high school league. Um, I was kind of still doing it socially until I got to probably, you know, year 11, year 12, um, where I started taking it a bit more serious as, you know, my body developed, you know, I got a bit stronger, I got a bit faster, fitter. Um, so I started seeing it. Um, you know, come out a bit more and then just kept progressing every year, really. Was there anything that flicked like a switch where you thought, I can actually make a go of this? Um, it was probably year 12. Um, that's where I probably started seeing, you know, a, a lot more of the improvements on the track. Um, you know, I started with the grass running in the pro leagues and then we moved into the amateur running, which is out on the track. Um, and, you know, as a you get out to the track, you start running for times, you know, you get more addicted to it because you're like, oh, you know, how fast can I actually get? Um, 
so it was probably around that sort of period that I started noticing a bit more. That being said, though, you know, I was I was increasing, you know, my speed, my strength all the time, but you know, I still was I was taking a lot of it for granted. You know, I wasn't I was doing a lot of it half half asked, wasn't really doing gym properly. Um, so you know, I did while I did take it serious, I also didn't at the same time, which is a bit annoying from my point of view now. Would you like now, are those the things you would have done differently? Do you think there would have like was when you when you started was what was I suppose the goal? Was it like Olympics or Com Games or national championships? Like, did you have a specific point in mind? Um, I think for any for any kid who's involved in some sort of sport that's at the Olympics level, you know, they do would all inspire to go to the Olympics one day. Um, so, you know, while you know in those early years, that was always something that you know pushed me. Um, it wasn't really until I moved to the Gold Coast where I took a you know I set a concrete goal, um, which was to try and qualify for the Commonwealth Games. Um, so up until that sort of point, I didn't really have a specific goal that I was kind of pushing myself towards to, to make myself more accountable at training. I was kind of just going through the motions of actually training and enjoying just running on the day. Yep. And with surf lifesaving, because we do have some guests who listen in, not guests, I should say, fans of the show who listen in who are not from Australia, who won't be familiar what that is. Can you explain to that? Like if you're explaining to someone who is from from the US or Europe or is, you know, where it's not really a thing, what's like surf, surf life-saving? So it should still be a pretty reasonable thing over over in those countries because it is a um, a world sport. Is that right? Well, yeah, say, yeah, I, I've learned something as well. Yeah, there you go. So Because they do have world champs every three years for surf life-saving. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it is a uh, yeah world recognized sport. Um, but essentially, yes. you know, you got your your Ironman, you got your swim, you got your board races, your ski races. You know, you've got your surf boats. Um, but then there's the beach sprints and the beach flags, and you know they're sort of the main events. Um, then you have you know a few other little uh, events in and around that. But yeah, it's actually a worldwide event. Do you think you'd ever go back to it, or do you still have a bit of a dabble in it these days? In surf life saving? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I did it up until up until the year before I moved back to Adelaide. Um, but I haven't had a chance to compete back out on the sand yet. Um, it took almost probably almost probably two years off of sprinting uh, when I just after a year after I moved home. Um, so I don't know if if the stars align next season. You know, I'll uh, jump out in the sand and uh, do some sand dancing again. Get me an updated photo, a new photo to put on my desk, mate. Yeah, I'll get you. I'll get you one of those. I'll get you. Uh, I'll get you triple the size time this time, mate. It's still there. Like, haven't spent much time in the office lately, but yeah, still sitting there. Yeah, pride of place, mate. Get a bit of a oh, inspo. I've you know, got the uh, the Titanic um, movie that you sent me is in my drawer. <laughs> I've got a couple of others. I've got some random or some DVDs here, mate. I think there could be a. There's a copy of White Men Can't Jump sitting there that uh, might need to give you someone, but. I was actually thinking the other day, I literally don't have anything in my house these days to even play a DVD on. So I've yeah, like that's why your laptop, DVD no. just sitting in my um in my drawer. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably, where, probably where it belongs, mate. Now, what's your what's your pet distance? So are you like 100, 200? Yeah, so hundreds and two hundreds is definitely what I'm better at. Um, 
I, I dabbled in 400s for, for a few years. That's what I was trying to qualify um, in, the, in the Com Games for, um, the Gold Coast Com Games. Um, but, you know, a few training errors here and there and um, obviously didn't lead to the right direction. Um, then when I moved back to Adelaide and I was, you know, still content on trying to be a 400-metre runner, um, plus then now working full-time for the first time ever. So, you know, that combination um, pushed me into that hole where, I'd, where I chose to take some time away from sprinting because I mentally needed it. Yep. Um, you know, and now since being back, I'm doing uh, 100s and 200s again. You know, I've gone with the less is more approach and quality over quantity, um, which has been really good for me. Um, you know, it's only been started back in January, what are we now, August, and I've already gotten back to a very comfortable uh, speed, which, you know, I was in before I moved into those fours. Well, it looks like from, I get the outsider's look of, you know, following along on your social, it looks like you're flying, like doing all the right things. And I know you even along since I've been, since I've known you, since I followed along, you see, you know, the odds say like injury here or just working on like strength training and, and those yeah. sort of things. How, to, to give us some context, like how close were you to, to you know, running at a, at a national level, like Com Games sort of stuff? Um, it's, it's hard to tell because, you know, a lot of my training times that season going into, um, into the Com Games, you know, they all indicated that I could run, you know, either a, um, that sub-21 that I was been waiting to do for so long or... Um, or a low 46, potentially um, high 45 second 400 meter run. Um, but just couldn't, you know, I couldn't get it together on the day um, or just in general when I was competing that year. Um, I don't know if there was something mentally blocking me from doing so, or I was just constantly overtraining. So I just, you know, get to race day and I'd just be fatigued, um, you know, but that I would have hundred percent been in the final if I could pull it together on the day. Um, potentially could have placed top five, maybe, um, given the times that were run that year. And you know, who, who knows? It's up to up to the selectors from there, really. I think, you know, I look at every time the Olympics rolls around, and you see like every, like track and field. I know like swimming's great, but I feel like Australia and maybe the US are the only countries who really you know get yeah. around that sort of stuff. And like the track and field, I'm just in awe of that because it's there's something so simple about it, like fastest person across the line and just the drama, the theatre around it. And you mentioned before, sometimes from like a mental perspective, I, I, I personally think, and not having played any elite level sport, but having played some, some sport, there's, and it mainly only been team sports, aside from maybe a bit of tennis or a bit of golf, like very badly, with track and field, particularly like the, the, the running, sprinting on the track, you only get one, one chance to get it right. It's not like a game of footy where if you muck up in the first quarter, you can rectify that through, you know, going about it or basketball or those sort of things. Or, yeah. it, you know, you've got it's, – it's, it's over in the blink of an eye, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And even having watched the most recent Olympics, you see like the false starts and, the, the, and that's it. It's yeah. done. And yeah. – the thing is, it's such a sprinting, like more so than the than the middle distance and the long distances. You know, it's such a technical um, sport. 
you know, if you don't nail one part of your race, then, you know, it could be over. And in, especially in a hundred meters, you know, that one mistake will cost you the race. You know, mm. there's not enough, there's no time to rectify that problem unless you're, you know, the freak of nature. We all know Usain Bolt. Uh, he, he might still get a bad start from here to there, but he can still recover it well enough because he was so quick. But, you know, for someone who, you know, is on that average of, you know, just out of the brinks of the making an Olympic final and you need to run your best race in your life to be able to make that final. And if you just, if you slightly have one foot placement out of place, then, you know, it could cost you that race, which is crazy. What do you think is going through the minds of those people? Could you, if you could give us an example, like when you're on the blocks and starting, what's going through your mind? Are you trying to keep your mind clear of anything or you do you have a plan and say, okay, need to keep the head down for the first 10 steps steps or 10 steps and then, then I come up and then do you break it down into segments? Like what's going through your mind? Yeah, you've got to break it down into segments. Um, I try not to think about it too much once I'm on the start line. You know, all I kind of... I would always overplay in my head is, you know, like explode on the gun, explode on the gun, explode on the gun. Um, and after that, you know, I kind of just go blank and just let, you know, muscle memory and all that sort of stuff take over. Like I know from training, 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 and, you know, it's engraved into my head that, you know, I drive to come out of the blocks. I drive to 30 to 40 meters. I then transition out of that up into my, into my running phase. And then it's, you know, on from there. Um, I kind of just let, yeah, let myself go blank once I'm out of the blocks to and allow my body to do what I know it's going to do, essentially. Yeah, well, mate, I, I think it's, it's bloody cool, you know, knowing someone who, uh, who sprints and, and yeah, it's just like when you ask anyone, like, what do you want to do? If you were to win anything at the Olympics and stuff, people say 100 metres, like, you've got to be. It's like the, it's the main event. I guess yeah. what everyone, uh, everyone likes. It gets, it's a nice little ego booster i guess you yep. call it yeah <laughs> you know, fastest person on the yeah, planet yeah exactly it's yep. when you say it in the um you know for swimming for instance you know like you might win the the i don't know, 50 meter free or whatever mm. it doesn't quite have the same ring as you know fastest swimmer on the planet whatever as nah. fastest you know fastest person on like on land or whatever you know, it doesn't yeah. have the ring to it um that's the, I, that could just be me being biased you know, being a but, you know, we'll ask a few other people and see what they say. So what's, uh, and you're still like still running now? Like what's running look like in your life at the moment? Yeah. So yeah, like I said, went back to training um, in January after having a couple of years off um, where I just did my own training, you know, just did some long runs three or four times a week and did some, you know, cross, uh, CrossFit training. Yep. Um, so yeah, transition back in, in January because I actually genuinely started missing it for the first time. Um, and, you know, I was turning 28. So it was time to give it one last, one last dance before um, my legs start getting too old, I guess. Um, but funnily enough, within the first four weeks of going back, things started, you know, muscle memory kicked in pretty quick. Um, and I found out pretty quick as well that my mind was ready to go fast but my body wasn't. And I actually tore my hammy first four weeks back at training. Um, first time I've ever torn my hammy as well. And that was pretty annoying, you know, only mm. just coming back to training and just tearing my hammy. And I was like, oh, do I throw it back in already or do I push through? But 
obviously pushed through, you know, training six, seven times a week now, um, you know, three or four running sessions and three gym sessions at the moment. Um, doing obviously all the recovery needed to keep my body in check because it gets a bit higher every year. You, um, well, every time you get older, you know, every year, got to do that extra mileage of recovery. What's the, 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 the dedication, the involvement of, or the, the results you look to see like in training, obviously it's, you want to be running faster. That's a given. And whenever I'm talking about, talking about something to help me make sense of it, I try and bring an example of how it, how it relates to me. I'm definitely not sprinting, but there's times like last year when we, we sort of first went into a lockdown and all you could do was run. I ran out and wanted to just run faster and faster every time. And then was after chatting to some people who actually have a clue about running. And this is over like, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks, 15, that sort of thing. They'd say, you can't just go out and try and run faster every time. It's literally, there might be once a week where you actually run faster. The rest of the time is doing slow stuff, doing the conditioning and things. What sort of gains are you looking for when you train? Is it, and I know we're talking obviously like seconds here, but what's sort of the, the, the training plan? Is it you do all the base work and then you do a bit of a, a time trial once a week? Yeah, so we've got like a, um, it's structured out. So we have the, like a general uh, general prep phase, then a specific prep phase, then a kind of comp prep phase, and then it is competition time. So you have your cycles within within a season. Um, it's, a, it's a long season. You know, you normally get, two weeks off in, in May, and then it's kind of straight back into pre-season. Um, if you're going into the over to Europe or US to compete in the summer league, you know, you're not really getting much of a off season. Um, but we do it on four week cycles pretty much or, or I do. Um, and, you know, it looks like a, you know, on a Tuesday night, we'll do a speed session. Um, so it's literally nothing over 80 meters pretty much. So it'd be a combination of, you know, 30s, 45s, 60s, 75s, or anything like that. You know, um, tonight we did uh, 45, 60, 60 in the first set, and then 60, 75, 75, and then three 75s in the last set. So it's just, you know, a combination of keeping the legs fast, ticking them over, focusing on, you know, working on your technical model, um, making sure your legs are turning over in the back end of that race. Oh, not race, run. Um on a Thursday night, we uh, keep it at, at speed endurance. So, you know, that's pushing it out to anything above 120 metres. Um, you know, right now with this, we're doing 200s, 175s and 150s. Um, you know, they're probably about three to five minutes of recovery, having them nice and fast, making sure that lactic buildup is happening all through the legs, Um that way you've been able to build on, um, build up all that strength work, um, but, you know, you're still keeping it fast as well. They're the, they're the sessions that hurt the most. I think the last three weeks I've vomited after every session. Oh, I, strangely, I sometimes miss the feeling of training that hard where you have a bit yeah. of a bomb. You know? hasn't happened for bad. a long, like, long time. Yeah, obviously. The first, you know, the first well, week I got halfway through the session <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm done here. And I had to literally stick my fingers down my throat, get the vomit out, and then get back on the line go again. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? Like, um, and then Saturdays at the moment's been a um, bit of a combination of everything really. So we do a lot of um, plyometric and bounding and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, we do sled, heavy sled works um, with, you know, back up short 40 meter runs after them, um, which would then transition into, you know, blocks and sleds and 
accommodation of all of that really um until it gets to the point where we don't need sleds anymore and it would just you know normally just be block starts yep um working on you know that acceleration phase um, which is crucial for a sprinter Man, it sounds full on like, and obviously you you enjoy that stuff like it it's all it's obviously a process and stuff but you look like it's it mix it up from like week to week but obviously you're still loving it and is it like any other any other sport where you like for someone going to do their their footy training twice a week or or netball training or those sort of things like are there some similarities with sort of certain things that you do regularly yeah yeah absolutely because obviously there's the gym sessions a week three Mm. sessions a week as well you know there's the ice baths there's the sauna um there's getting you know your massages every two three weeks um i'm pretty bad at doing my own prehab at home um especially now that there's a dog in the house, he just jumps all over me. Um, but, you know, you have your little set routines that you do. Um, it's good. You know, it keeps, keeps me busy. Um, I, I see it a lot of the time as a, as a form. I, I love, I love doing it, but I also see it as a form of, it's like a form of addiction. Um, you know, you get addicted to, especially when you, you, you know, you constantly have your stopwatch in your hand, you know, you finish your run, you look at it, you're like, oh yeah, you know, shit, I can go faster than that next one. You know, you constantly yeah. want to push yourself more and more just to see how fast you can, you know, get or how far you can push your body, which is probably one of the main things I do love about sprinting. It's just, you know, how far can I push my body to yeah. get that end result or that end time that I desire? Well, I think it's pretty evident that you you're passionate about it because obviously you're coaching now as well. Yeah. You're coaching uh, a group of up and coming runners. Sprinters. Yeah. So, um, the Port Adelaide Athletics Club has um, a Aboriginal athletic squad, um, which I coach on the Monday nights. We, you know, we do two sessions. We have, uh, I think three or four coaches. Um, you know, I look after the older kids on the Monday night, you know, I just do a bit of technical work with them. Um, just, you know, a bit of introductory stuff to sprinting. Um, you know, a lot of them are just footballers or something that might come out in their off season just to work on their on their technical model and just you know get a bit stay fit. Um, but we have a lot of young kids, um, you know, from you know year fives, six, seven, eights come out as well, um, and they love it. You know, that's just some, it's almost like a a new just a new sport for them where they can come out, enjoy themselves, have fun, get to kind of like the concept of little um, little A's mm. um, just, just specifically for Aboriginal kids so that, you know, they're in a safe environment. Um, you know, they can feel comfortable um, being around other Aboriginal kids and, you know, not, you know, around a whole bunch of random people that they've never met before in their life. Yep. And do you think, have you noticed anything? Because obviously there's, there's probably from, and this is, uh, through my experience, like growing up and seeing there's, I think at every level of sport in Australia, there's an underrepresentation of Aboriginal athletes. Do you see there's any particular, like, say, distances or like an, an affinity that, you know, some of the the junior athletes that you have are some, are, you know, better suited to sprinting or better suited to middle middle distance? Like, do you, is it purely just sprinting that you're working with them with or what, what does it uh, go up to? Nah, so they do. So the other coaches um, that we have, you know, they might be good at, they might be a high jumper who's, Mm. so they do do all the other sports, um, the events, sorry. Um, You know, we do have them doing high jump, long jump, um, javelin, shot put, 
Um, and that, but that's it. You know, it's just sprinting and those other events as well that we that we look after um, on the Monday, Wednesday nights. Yeah. Do you think, you know, we're likely to be seeing a lot more Indigenous athletes representing Australia in track and field? Um, oh, I'd love to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got, you know, our communities have a lot of raw, untapped talent, um, you know, not just in the South Australia, you know, Australia-wide. Um, you know, I w- it's one thing I would love to see is having more Aboriginal kids in athletics and surf life saving. Um, you know, it's always been me or two others, you know, that I've ever known out in the sport. Um, so it would be great to see, you know, the, the numbers rise up in that. But unfortunately, you know, there's that stereotype that falls on a lot of Aboriginal people, you know, that were only all football players or something like that. So that stereotype kind of gets stigmatized on us and then we kind of engrave it into our heads and we're like no we only want to play footy so it's hard to kind of get them to transition from that thinking of they're going to be an AFL player to thinking about opening their you know their vision to other sports as well do you think that like a lot to do with like what obviously what we see like in like mainstream media like obviously there's a yeah. lot of Aboriginal footballers, more and more, like which is great to see, you know, like just yeah. with the the natural affinity they have for the game. And then you look someone like, obviously, the the, the prime example is someone like Kathy Freeman, who a happened to, I think, you know, put modern day athletics for a lot of Australians like on the map. And then, mm. like, what was that like as an Aboriginal man to see someone like you know? Because obviously, how old were you when uh, when Kathy was doing doing her thing in 2000. It would have been a young pup back then, eh? 2007. Okay. So yeah. Do you remember that at all or do you remember? <sighs> Not really. Um, I, like, I vaguely remember it. Um, so long ago now, though. But, you know, that was a pivotal moment, not only for Australia in general, but for Aboriginal uh, kids as well. Um, you know, there probably would have been a little surge in, um, in athletics with Aboriginal kids after that period. Um, but a lot of the um, problem is, is the, the lack of opportunities as well mm. um, in, in terms of athletics in general. You know, it's not a very funded sport um, like AFL. Um, so they do see it as, you know, if we push through playing AFL, you know, we might, we might make it onto a list somewhere one day, you know, that's going to have 80 grand as a rookie list, whereas mm. athletics, there's no money in it unless you're, you know, banking in on those Olympic selections in the, in the Olympic finals, common game finals and everything. There's not really any money in the sport. I think it, it, it's very true. Like I was only reading an article the other day, like, you know, Peter Bowl, you know, who, uh, you know, kicking ass at the, at the Olympics and, he from like athletics in general, I think it might have been like Athletics Australia or the AOC or whatever, you know, made like six grand or something over like five years. And if it wasn't for, I think, you know, endorsements and things like that, then you know, you're not you can't can't live, you know. So you can understand yeah. how that's and that's that's across the board. And you can see people taking their chance. Oh, I might have a crack at cricket, I might have a go at, at basketball, netball, something where you've got a probably higher probability yeah. of, of earning a living, I suppose. Yeah, and I honestly believe if, you know, if the Australian government threw more money into, as much money into athletics as they did as swimming, you know, beach volleyball, 
basketball, footy or whatever, like all those other events, like we would have an even better um, than what we already have, like an even better athletics um, squad going over to the Olympics and world champs or every year. Um, but it's because the, I think a lot of it comes down to the money. You know, that's where they mm. lose a lot of their, a lot of the talent, you know, they, especially with the young kids in New South Wales and Queensland, you know, they, you know, they might be quick hundred meter, 200 meter runner and straight away they'll get snatched up by, you know, uh, NRL team um, mm. out, out in the leagues over there. So it's hard to keep them in the sport when they might get offered all this money as like a 16, 17 year old. And they're like, well, I know where I'm going. So mm. I hard. remember I was at a, it was like a, a speaking event going back a couple of years now in Melbourne. And there was a, someone from the Australian Sports Commission who was the head of the Australian Sports Commission. The name escapes me now, Kate, someone maybe. And so this is 2018. This is two years after Rio where our swimming team didn't really perform that well. And yep. there's almost like a, a bloody national inquiry in Australia. It's like, why are our team not winning medals and this and that? And she explained that whilst our investment in swimming has always been quite high compared to, say, other nations, a lot of other nations caught up and were spending the same, investing the same, if not more, on, yes. on that. So that's why it appeared that we probably weren't doing as well. And then it's always been a curiosity to me. You, you look at, say, for example, uh, like the, the Caribbean nations and particularly, say, somewhere like Jamaica, for such a small area and small population, they are overrepresented in the, the sprinting. And is that something based on do you think obviously like you know just there's just there's so much you know natural talent in the area or that's like a, a focus that would they probably think first like i'm gonna i want to be a sprinter there's more likelihood in them doing that or um i guess a lot of it would come down to natural talent to start off with you know there is a lot of i've been over there and i've trained um at one of the um one of the training squads over there and the depth that they have is is ridiculous like you know it's much like a, um, America, I know they've got a bigger population, um, especially of you know of sprinters in general as well. But the depth in in the fields over there is insane. Like you go to an um, Olympic trial in America, and if you're not running sub ten, you know you're not making the team. You know if you've got to be around that nine eight nine nine to make the team, and that's in that's just at the the trials. And there's probably you know. 12 odd people that are in contention to take out the um, Olympic trials. And it's the same as Jamaica, you know, there's probably, you know, 12 to 15 people all around that mark that could make the team. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's a cultural thing as well. It's probably very easy for Australian, you know, always known as a, a strong swimming nation, just to keep reinvesting there. It's almost like it's, it's easy. That's what you see. And they're the people who are on the, the bloody Uncle Toby's ads and, you know, Weetbix and all that sort of stuff. And occasionally there's maybe once every four years, someone bobs up and I'm not going to say overachieves, but she's like your, um, the Sally, uh, the hurdler, what's her name? Uh, Pearson. Sally Pearson. And then uh, Steve Hooker, you know, does it. Does it and then you have Tatiana Grigori Avers. You can name sort of one every like, olympics who does does okay in like in the in the track and field yeah. and whereas you know it's it's almost expected that we do well in the swimming but i think you're dead right it's all about what's uh because you know you do swimming lessons 
when you're a kid. Granted, that's a life-saving thing, you know, as well. But imagine if it is even, I remember for me growing up, and it's a different kettle of fish in a small country town, but there was no athletics aside from once a year you have your school sports carnival so even if you wanted to it's just it's just not there yeah i don't know I, I guess yeah it just comes down to you know well i guess one thing you put it as is you know it's how the the australian community sort of invests themselves as well into sport mm. um you know i look you look, look at how much i guess you know, channel seven, channel nine or whatever those channels, um, they pump into that, you know, the rights to host like the swimming trials and all that sort of stuff. Like you look at the athletics nationals, we never get a trial, um, our tr- Olympic or com games or anything trials put on channel seven, you know, it's just a live stream. Right. So, you know, if channel seven got on board, you know, and, you know, streamed um, the Olympic trials for athletics, you know, more people will get invested in it. And then, you know, the government will then want to put more money into the sport as well. Um, so it's just, you know, things floating off everywhere that could be fixed to make the sport better. Oh, who knows, man? We could have surf life-saving at the, at the, the Olympics in 2032, yeah. mate, in Brizzy, make its debut. Yeah, they um, have the Ironman or something. That could be pretty wild. That would be cool. And I reckon a lot of people would, uh, would get into that. Yeah, that would be, I reckon that'd be sick. Because they do obviously it is a world event, so who knows? Yeah, and I said I'm going to be going to look that up now because here's me well, coming. Surfing, it's only done in Australia. In there, if surfing's in there, there's no reason they can't put an Ironman in there as well. Absolutely. They've got, yeah, tri- they've, they've got triathlons. It's you know it's triathlon Ironman. You know it's it's all on the same park. Yeah. So TJ, you're a proud Aboriginal man. Where is for for those who don't know, like. Uh, Where's where's your country in Australia? Where are you from? So obviously down here in South Australia, uh, where my language groups are. Um, so my mobs are Cookatha, which is the far west coast of South Australia. So you know, on the way out to Perth, pretty much. Um, Narunga, which is the York Peninsula, Ghana, which is Adelaide Plains region, and I've also got very strong connections to the Adnumatna people, which is the Flinders Ranges, and that's where. I spent a lot of my time growing up on country, um, learning the language, learning the stories, um, you know, visiting you know, sacred sites and learning off my elders out that way. And for those who don't know where that is, in the show notes of this episode, I'll be able to put a link to the language groups map where, and there'll be some notes of this specifically uh, of the language groups that TJ's mentioned. So you'll be able to go and have a look and see exactly where in Australia they're, uh, they're from. So beautiful spots. Speaking of, it's probably a good segue. Speaking about like education, now I know that's something that you're really passionate about, particularly uh, Indigenous culture, heritage, and history education, and so much so that you've now started your own organisation, which sort of specialises in that. Yep. Tell tell me about uh, tell me more about that. Yeah. So um, last year in the mix of the uh, pandemic, um, you know, I wasn't comfortable in my job. I was working nine to five corporate, didn't like it. And, you know, decided to not let, you know, the lockdowns and everything get the best of me. And I flipped it on, on its head essentially and started my own business. And I wanted to, I'd wanted to do it for a while now. 
um, you know, it's been in the back of my head and um, decided to start a business around, you know, delivering cultural education, um, education within schools. Um, I'd always worked around schools in some way or form. Um, so, you know, I always had that relationship with schools and um, teachers and, and students already. And the main aspect of it was to just educate as many people as I could. Um, we live in a country that's so divided. Um, you know, we live in a country that is, I guess, supposedly not racist, but we all know it is racist. Um, and, you know, we constantly see Aboriginal people, um, not just Aboriginal people, you know, all, all cultural backgrounds and religions at the sort of back end of, you know, everything. And I felt like if I could do my part in the world by educating as many kids as I could who are literally the next generation of this country, um, you know, they're all in their current years where they're building their own mindsets, you know, building their own opinions on people, cultures, religions. So if I was able to give them the right information about, you know, Aboriginal people, about our culture, um, about our beliefs and, you know, stories and language and all that sort of stuff, then, you know, they're being educated with the right information and, you know, they're able to build their own um perception of aboriginal people and not use the information that are is received from i guess dodgy politicians and dodgy media outlets um, that always seem to portray a negative um, portrait of aboriginal people so you know i've done i've done that i put all that together um you know added in art programs as well as the educational stuff a um, few murals here and there. I do cultural tours within the gardens and the museum, um, which is great. So it's a bit of a mixed batch in there. Um, keeps me busy, that's for sure. Um, but but it's been it's been great. Um, I feel like I always see you painting. You're always uh, you know uh, oh. flat out, mate. Got the paintings are here. Um, I think everyone because obviously everyone loves to do art and everything. It's a great hands on activity. Um, so being able to do an Aboriginal um, art workshop while, you know, you're learning some stories of um, those artwork I do is related to Adamantna country um, and, and myself. Um, so, you know, the students love hearing the, the stories to the artwork that they're, they're painting, um, which, you know, it helps connect them to, you know, that right information and that positive uh, mindset towards Aboriginal people and Aboriginal culture. And is it just like schools and that education you work on or is it anything you do for sort of like corporations or, uh, you know, adults, adult education? Um, so I, I do some of the um, the art stuff with, with a few organisations here and there. Um, the educational stuff, I, I don't really um, work with big-time organisations or, um, you know, corporate bodies or whatever, or whatever um, purely because... My dad's been doing um, cultural sensitivity and respect training for the last, you know, 35 years. Um, so, you know, he's the guru in that. Um, you know, I always take a, you know, a leaf out of his booklet and, you know, I always learn off of him and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I just steer my stuff at, um, at the younger generation. He sort of 
steers his stuff at the um, uh, at the older generation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Has he been a big influence on you sort of stepping out and, and doing your own thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, to see how he conducts himself um, when he's out delivering training and, you know, just the wealth of information that's stored up in his head, um, you know, it definitely inspires you to be able to learn more constantly. Um, I've been sitting in on his um, on his trainings over the last few months, just being able to learn more information um, and take over some of his um, bookings for him, just to take a bit of, um, I guess, a uh, bit of the weight off of his shoulders because he's just flat out. Um, you know, who knows? One day I can might be able to take over the family business, and then, <laughs> then I've got now and his business together, and you know, I've got a big mashup. I think. Well, that, that's great, mate, you know, to be able to step in, like, you know, the family beers of, you know, like cultural education, you know, cultural sensitivity training. And yeah. has, with with what we've, we've seen in the, the cultural shift in, you know, since arguably early 2020, where, you know, things, it, it was like a global shift with, you know, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I feel like that permeated the whole world where it was all of a sudden, there was a, a focus on the, the well-being, the rights, and just position of people of colour uh, in mm. in communities like worldwide. And I know, and I've I've been lucky enough to have you know done some sessions with you uh, through like our work. You know, when you're educating uh, our our teams on anything from around you know like reconciliation or you know NADOC week, those sort of things. Now, with education. And I know you've been quite vocal on this. How, what, what do you think needs to change from in an Australian perspective as far as like education goes? Because I almost look at it, and once again, I bring it back to me is I'm in school, we, we had cultural studies. So I remember one of my mates, Mark Williams, his dad, you know, once a week he'd take us for cultural studies. And I, I didn't retain a lot of the information, but it was probably like a lot of stuff from like school. But, you know, I remember, you know, uh, and that's in Katanning where I grew up. Um, so, you know, a lot of my Noongar mates, you know, you know, in the class with me and uh, trying to, you know, drag me along to make sure that I could, you know, could keep up. And I think I only remember, you know, what the, the leg bone was caused like the moyle or something like that, right? That's one of the one things I took away from it. But in all seriousness, what needs to change from an education perspective in, in your opinion, in schools across Australia with regards to um, the, I suppose, let's just say like the history of Australia. It's a very, you know, um, relevant sort of conversation at the moment. What do you think needs to be added, changed in your opinion? Um, the whole curriculum needs to be changed, to be honest. Like at the moment, it's it's a white flushed curriculum. Um, you know, it was from the moment the uh, the curriculum was developed, it was developed um, not for Aboriginal history and culture. It was de- developed from uh, colonial history. Um, you know, so they start they're starting their history in you know from you know 1788. You know, but the country that we are on, you know, dates back to a hundred thousand years. You know, so it needs to, the whole curriculum needs to be changed. Like there is in the curriculum, you know, Aboriginal, um, uh, you know, content, but it's an elective. So, you know, it needs to not be an elective and go into, 
you know, a main main core subject like, um, you know, have your maths, English, has and all that sort of stuff. You know, it needs to be in there as a specific subject for, um, for students in schools because, you know, you can't just be like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, a history lesson today. You know, oh, cool, we'll tick off one little thing in the box um, to say that we've taught Aboriginal culture, um, about some stuff about Aboriginal history. You know, there's so much to learn and so much to understand is you can't just, you know, tick off a quick box in an hour lesson, um, which is, you know, it is say it's history or has or whatever, you know, they're learning about a whole bunch of other things as well. So there's not enough time. So for it to have its own, own subject within a school is would be the ideal thing to do. Mm. The solution is how do you get that? Um, there's more and more people wanting to teach or more and more teachers wanting to teach uh, Aboriginal history and all that sort of stuff and, you know, diving into those deeper things. But the problem you see is that they either don't know what to teach and they don't want to offend anyone, so then they don't teach anything at all, mm. um, which is where that, that, that gap lays um, you know, they're too scared to teach the wrong thing, so they won't do it. It's like, well, you know, you live from you live and learn from your mistakes. So, you know, if you offend someone, then just own it and move on. But you know, at least you've tried to do the right thing, I guess. Um, that's in the like in a, in a curriculum sense, but you know, in in the I guess in the adult world, you know, the the hardest thing is getting people to engage in it because mm-hmm. they have their own mindsets already made up. Um, it is growing and growing, um, you know, the number of, I guess, allies that Aboriginal people were able to, um, you know, bring in every year from people wanting to learn more and educate themselves, um, but still not enough. You know, we're, we're only 3% of the population, but, you know, even with those allies, we're probably still not anything over 15%. Um, and you can't do much work with 15%. Pop, um, of the population you know you need the full 100 population and are you in any work to try and you know talks with any bodies about like getting things added to the curriculum or getting the curriculum changed or is that i'm guessing that's not quite not a not a simple task just to to have something like that be, uh, be adjusted kick some doors down and turn some heads um i wish it was that simple um I haven't really looked into it, but I know it's definitely not that simple. Um, you know, there would be, you'd need to almost set up a whole kind of, oh, I don't even know, like a whole kind of office within the Department of Education, I guess, in terms of, you know, creating the content, creating the lessons, the lesson plans and, you know, everything really. Um, the, the other thing is as well is, you know, there's over 600 different Aboriginal language groups within Australia. So, mm. you know, what, what group do you specifically talk about? Um, mm. you know, because, you know, your school might be on, let's say, Ghana country, for instance, you know, but and, you're, and that school wants to teach stuff about Ghana. Um, but then, you know, how do you make that, um, you know, generalised around all of Australia? yeah it's 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 a tricky one to navigate 
Well, I feel like the schools, I think, to, to affect real and, and permanent changes, school age children are, are the, the place where you're going to do that, you know, to, to in a way, I suppose, to normalise the fact that, you know, Australia's, you know, history, there's what's told and what's actually happened as well. And as, you know, anyone knows, like, it's not a, uh, you know, particularly from a, uh, from a white person's perspective, it's not something, you know, probably to be particularly uh, proud of, but it is what it is. And I've found that there's many instances, and I actually go back to like the Commonwealth Games in 2018, like watching the opening ceremony, and I found whenever there was something that seemed odd to me, whenever there was a big event or where, you know, say a lot of people watching or the world might be watching, and mm. then there'd be you know, some Indigenous Aboriginal dancing, Indigenous dancing, and then it's like they show, it's almost like, oh, look, here's what Australia's like, you know, showing this stuff off when the world's watching, yeah. but then you go away from that and you don't see it anywhere, you know, or you wouldn't yeah, see it. Uh, they they roll us out on their red carpet and then when they're done with us, they'll put us back in the box. You know, mm-hmm. that how long did that ceremony go for? And we were 14, Aboriginal people were 14 minutes of it. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like they, you know, they rolled us out, you know, okay, cool, we you know, you've done your Aboriginal dance, you've welcomed the country, we'll roll you back in your box now and, and we're done with you. We've got, we've got the rest of the hour and a half ceremony that we've got mm. to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Small things like that, like, you know, they're small, but people notice, you know, it, it does, um, I guess, mentally, um, can mentally um, take you down wrong paths, I guess, in terms of, Know, seeing how how you're treated in 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 that sense, you know, there was actually um, a lot of Aboriginal people that protested the Commonwealth Games open ceremony on the night mm-hmm. that it happened because of that reason. Yep. And like, what's the the obviously education's important from your perspective, mate? What's what's next for the work that you're in as far as like education, like awareness uh, and training? Like, where do you where do you see your work going uh, with, you know, with, with I suppose the path you want to go on and the impact that you want to that you want to have? Like, where do you see see things in five years or ten years? Um, five, ten years time. Look, I'd probably would love to have, you know, made a real dent in the amount of schools that I've been able to deliver my educational stuff to um, here within South Australia. But, you know, 10 years time, I would have loved to have branched out to a, you know, a few other states um, and deliver my sessions to schools over there, um, which I can do because, you know, I'm not talking about any specific Aboriginal group in general. You know, I'm talking about Aboriginal culture and history as a whole. Mm. Um, so, you know, being able to take my stuff on, on a bit of a you know road show would be, you know, would be amazing, um, you know, make an impact on a national scale, not just the, the state scale, because um, that's essentially what, you know, my goal is, um, you know, the pillar of my business is becoming one, mm. um, which is the name of my business, Indi. So Indi translates to becoming one in Ghana language. Um, but that's the pillar of my business, you know, bring this divided country that we have together as one and even socially like taking the sort of the work of schools and things out of it 
And it seems like there's, you mentioned it before with, you know, Australia being, and not liking to admit it collectively, you know, a racist nation. And I know by even saying that, that there's a lot of people who I know who will bristle at hearing that, hearing that term. But I think it is something that needs to be, to be recognised. And look, there's, whether you have your people on a long scale, the edge of the scale, like your Pauline Hansons and that sort of stuff, who we, you know, we all wish would probably just go away and do our own thing yeah. to those who are, probably don't even realise, you know, casually racist or just a little bit ignorant and those sort of things, you know, where where do you see the biggest opportunity for Australians to come together? Um, it's getting on, it's just getting on board with the small things, becoming an ally in whatever way possible. You know, we have your, uh, you know, January 26th, you know, National Survival Day for us. Mm. Now, understanding why that is called survival day or invasion day to Aboriginal people, understanding the true facts and, you know, even along terms of, you know, the national anthem and understanding why and how that is actually racist as well. Um, not just to Aboriginal people, but that song is actually also very racist to every other uh, cultural background within Australia. Yeah. You know, it's, it was specifically designed for one group of people and that wasn't, it doesn't represent the multicultural uh, country that we live in today um, but it's also just not being afraid to be sad or hurt on the true history mm. of what's happened you know, Australia was built on slavery and racism and it, it hurts a lot of people to actually acknowledge and believe that um, so they'd rather just ignore it and be like well you know my ancestors did all that so why do i why do i have to pay for what happened you know but the thing is you know we're not asking people to pay for what their ancestors did you know we're just asking for people to acknowledge and help bring you know aboriginal people back into society where they should be um, on the same level as mm. everyone else and not constantly having to start down here but below below the race you know but we're yeah. always constantly starting behind the start line yep. um and you know my my dad actually made a great comment um yesterday uh in terms of um you know with all the text walker stuff going mm. on he you know a few people were saying like oh you know why does it matter you know it was only you know casual racism um and my dad made a comment saying casual racism is like casual pregnancy it doesn't exist you're either racist or you're not, just like you're either pregnant or you're not. And it's, it's, it's you know, it's, I don't even know how to, you know, comprehend. Mm. You comprehend that and it's like, you know, okay, true. You know, it makes sense. You know, you're either racist or you're not, or you're pregnant or you're not. So it's, yeah. It's fascinating to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, how uppity so many people get about you look at January 26 and wanting to, to change a date to what's, you know, commonly has been known as Australia Day and say, oh, you know, I've, I've always thought it doesn't change what's happened on that date many, many, many years ago. So mm. I think you've got to acknowledge your history, but you don't have to celebrate it. It's and about bringing it to a date that everyone in this country. Yep can celebrate it, not just white people, essentially. Mm. Um, 
you know, there's so many other days that it can be done. You know, January 1st, 1901 was when all the states and territories federated to become a country. Mm. You know, like why can't that be Australia Day? You know, there's, that's a lot, that is literally a logical, you know, example of mm. what day it could be, but people don't want to talk about well, there, it. There could be like, is there a, is there a particular date where um, uh, Aboriginal Australians were given the right to vote? Something like that, you know, of... Uh, that was in 1962, Aboriginal people were allowed to vote. Mm. Um, 1967 yep. was when Aboriginal people were... was the first time that we were called... Well, were allowed to be citizens within our own country. Because prior to that, was it considered under the Flora and Fauna Act? Yes, yeah, so 1788 to 1967... Aboriginal people were classed as flora and fauna, which is plants and food for anyone that doesn't know. And, you know, we'd been on this country for 100,000 years already, but all of a sudden we were classed as food, uh, plants and food, plants and animals, sorry. Um, and that's a lot, that's a thing a lot of people don't know, mm. that, just that one fact alone. Um, and, you know, 1967 is not that long ago. No. That is about 55-ish years ago or something like that. So when you look at my parents, when they were born, they were born in 64 and 65. So for the first 18 months or so mm. of their life, they were classed as plants and animals. And then, you know, I'm the first generation in my family to actually be born an Australian citizen. Mm. And I'm only 28 years old. So, you know, that's a prime example of when people say, forget about it, it's in the past. It's like, well, it's not that long ago. It's, well, it's it's interesting when, you know, a lot of uh, people say, oh, forget about it, it's in the past, but they so desperately want to hang on to that history. You know, it's almost like it's, uh, it, it makes no sense. It's nonsensical. It's like, oh, get over it. That happened in the past. You can say, well, so did bloody the first fleet landing and that sort of stuff and planting the flag and plant, like, let's, I think, let's pick a day that represents okay. the Australia that we have now. Yeah, you know, the, and the way we want to be. Only, it's only been a national holiday for like 20, oh, 20 odd years or something like that. Yeah. It hasn't even been a national holiday that long. The same as the, the anthem. The anthem's only been around for 34 years. Mm. So I was like, why can't these things change? The thing is, they can, mate, but people, uh, you know, people don't want to want to change it. Like, it's not that yeah. hard to to hang the Aboriginal flag or the Torres Strait Islander flag up in Parliament, but you'd think that it was, you know, they were trying to declare nuclear war, you know, with you know, just little things like that. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to, I think we'll pick another day as long as it's in summer, you know, so we can get a, uh, get a day in summer. Yeah, I don't think anyone. And, but that's the thing. And I, I have faith that we will turn the corner as a country and become more united and, Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon just for how, how slow no. things, but that's when even chatting to, um, I was having a chat to a mate of mine the other day and he said he, he sometimes gets discouraged or finds it hard to speak out against racism, casual or not. And I said, mate, I understand like how you, how you feel, but it's not like you have to pick a fight with the person and stuff. Just let them know that it's not on and, you know, their opinions aren't appreciated and, work on your circle of influence. You're not going to change the country in one day, but thing, that... like, offend your friends, offend your family, like call them out if they're doing mm. something wrong. You know, if 
if they are offended, then they know that they've done something wrong or yeah. said something wrong. <laughs> and then they can acknowledge that and, you know, self-reflect and move, move on and learn. Yeah, I think we've got a we've got a long way to go, mate. But uh, like I said, uh, I'm not a not a a religious or spiritual person, but I do have faith that we will uh, that we will get there. And I think you know people like yourself, you know, who have taken upon themselves to follow what's important to them, what's you know something that you're passionate about and something that's important to you, and ultimately is important to everyone as well. I think you should be should be bloody proud of yourself, mate. You're doing some great work. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now, one thing I ask all the guests who come on, what are, and I'm putting you on the spot here, what are your core values? Core values? Yes, I haven't had to think about that for a while. Um, or just some words that you try and live your life by, you know, any, something like that. Uh, yeah, right. Um, I guess I always just try to be my be myself. Um, I don't try to you know, change myself the way I or the way I do things or the way I talk to people or whatever. Um, you know, I just always stay true to myself. Um, always being resilient. You know, that's always a, a key one for me. You know, you've got to be, especially. You know, I guess again. Uh, against a lot of the battles that I'm always fighting. Um, you know, I've always got to be resilient to push through them, um, training or work, you know, anything. Um, staying connected to my, not only to myself, but to my land, my culture, my family. Um, you know, if I'm connected to those things, um, then I'm connected to myself as a person. No, I guess just living living life on no regrets, you know, don't, don't go do something because you might think it might go wrong or something like that. And, you know, just do it, you know, if it turns to shit or whatever, um, live it, uh, learn, uh, sorry, live and learn from it. Mm. I, I subscribe to one of those. Like I, I think regret the things you have done, not the things you haven't. Yeah. And, because you can, nothing you can do about those that uh, that you haven't done, and so yeah, living with regret is a is a bad thing. And exactly. I also you didn't do something that day that you wanted mm. to do, and now it's like you know, say it's now tomorrow, you know, and you didn't get to do it. You know, that's something you'll never get, might never get yep. a chance to do again. I liked uh, that connection is one of yours as well, and I wanted to know, like I often see you take time to to go and connect, you know, get back to country, to go back and connect. What does that look for someone who's not familiar with what, uh, what that means? What does that, what does that mean to you? And what does that involve? Um, nowadays is honestly just probably just going camping. Um, you know, I, I love being out of as much as I love the city because I grew up here. Um, I love just getting away from it as well. Um, and resetting, whether it's going to the Flinders Ranges um, you know, going out to a few of the sacred sites or going out to a few of the, the local water holes that no one doesn't know about, um, you know, just reconnecting with the land. Um, if it's, you know, if it's going out to Narunga country or out to Kukuda area, like far west coast, you know, that's all, you know, surfy kind of fishing beach area. So just going out camping again, you know, living, 
living out in the campsites, going swimming, fishing, um, just anything really that connects you to the to what your sort of your language groups are known for. Mate, you sound like you, you have, have your own uh, have your own show, mate. You know, like out on country with uh, with TJ, mate. You know, bit of bit of fishing, bit of hunting, that sort of could stuff. Be, could be good one day. <laughs> yeah, I'm a shit fisher. <laughs> you and me both, mate. Um, yeah, TJ, thanks very much for for coming on the show, mate. Really appreciate your time uh, and you know being open and honest and and sharing you know, what you're up to and and what what things are important to you. I don't think this will be the last time that uh, you know we see you uh, on the Dusty Allen Show, mate. And for those who want to know all of the ways you can follow along with what um, TJ's up to will be in the show notes as well. But uh, thanks very much for coming on the show, mate. Thanks for having me. 